Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, it's the first of our Talking Politics guides and it's Helen Thompson, our resident expert on international finance, on generational politics and on history, talking about the 1970s. These Talking Politics guides are brought to you as ever in partnership with the London Review of Books, whose summer sale with the Paris Review, two subscriptions for one low price, is open to Talking Politics listeners. Head to lrb.co.uk forward slash guides for more information, along with the usual lists of further readings from the LRB archive. There is something fairly arbitrary about doing politics decade by decade, so I assume you don't think the 1970s in political terms started on January the 1st, 1970. When did they start? Uh, that's a pretty hard question, needless <laughs> to say, is because you could argue, I think, that they maybe started in the 60s. Some people, I think, might say 1968, because that's the point, I think, in which the pressures in, in American politics reach a point that culminate in Johnson saying he's going to run for the presidency again, the beginnings of the Nixon presidency, and January 1969, true, but the election of 68. And Nixon's presidency does shape, I think, the 1970s. So that would be a contender. I think you could also argue then they start with one of Nixon's actions, the end of dollar-gold convertibility in the summer of 1971. There's a nice symbolic point, actually, in 1970, which is, is when American conventional oil production peaks. So you can, I think, take your pick. There are these points in the early history of the 70s that are known as the shocks, the Nixon shock, the oil shock, and the word shock is often associated with the 1970s. So were they shocks? I think that the the Nixon shock, the decision that he made over the course of a weekend in August 1971 to end dollar-gold convertibility can be described as a shock, not because there weren't long-term causes that led to that moment, but because it really was unexpected for Nixon to decide as he did, and he did it without any consultation with his allies. And he was ripping up, effectively, the post-war monetary, international monetary order. The oil shock was more long The oil shock, term. I think, it also had long-term causes, or at least medium-term causes. I think that the, the reason why that gets called a shock is, is because of, of the experience that ordinary people felt. And just tell us when, when we're talking about So October 1973 is when, over the next few months, the price of oil pretty much quadruples. That meant, if you take Britain, for instance, it is a context in which the miners were in a much stronger position than they had been in trying to break out of the Heath government's income policy. They went on strike. It led to the three-day week. People, as we recall, sitting around, you know, like in candle, with candles, cooking on, you know, like Caligas and leads to February 1974 general election. That's the one where the repercussions of it are very much part of people's daily experience. One of the things these two shocks have in common, so the oil shock is triggered by the Arab-Israeli war, the Nixon shock is a decision by an American president that has effects all around the world, is that people came to realise that a country like Britain, countries in Europe, were completely vulnerable to these kind of international events over which they had no control, and suddenly people realised there was this thing called the international order, the international economy, and they were part of it. Absolutely, because in, in, in lots of ways, the post-war monetary and financial international order had been constructed to insulate 
the domestic politics, particularly of Western European states, but to some considerable extent Japan ultimately as well, though that hadn't been the original intention at Bretton Woods. And so in some sense, the idea, though it didn't always obviously work out like this in practice, was that on economic questions, at least, democratic politics could work itself out in national ways. Now, there was a pretty significant consequence that on the security side is is that Western European states didn't really have any security autonomy, though the French rebelled against that quite strongly. But this idea that actually what happened in national economies was at the mercy of international events, I think that is something that is a kind of piercing shock that comes out of the early 1970s. By the time you get to the middle of the 70s, I think it's true to say that every democratic government in the Western world between about 73 and 75 falls. Mm -hmm. None of them survive. These two shocks. And then there are other words that are associated with this period. Stagflation is one. It was an age of quite widespread political terrorism, not just IRA violence in Britain, but um, in Germany. The Munich Olympics. The Munich Olympics, the Red Brigade, what went on in Italy. Yeah, the murder of Moro. Um, Spain was violent at this point. But also this is the time where democracy emerged in Spain, in Greece, after periods of uh, military rule. So the middle of the 70s is this kind of extraordinary period where everything's going on. It is, and actually, if you go into Latin America, democracy has a begins a troubling period. Well, actually, that's not true, because it began in the 60s with Brazil, but the Argentinian moves into a military dictatorship in the, in the 1970s. So it is a time in which domestic politics and international politics is pretty crisis-ridden. And I think the, the one that you didn't mention, it's not really a question about what happened to democracy, but it's an event in terms of domestic political revolution that we're still living with the consequences is obviously Iran. You know, we're right at the end of the decade, the Iranian revolution happens and that pretty fundamentally, I think, changes the geopolitics of the Middle East in ways in which we're still living with the consequences. So if we come on to that in a second, just tell people what stagflation is and was it real and did it matter? Stagflation is, is when unemployment and inflation were rising simultaneously and the reason why that was taken to be something that shouldn't happen was that I was going to say within Keynes's framework but it's more within a kind of like bastardized Keynesian framework that came out of the first two decades after the second world war was this thing called the Phillips curve and this idea that actually you could choose how much inflation you had in relation to how much unemployment and that there was a trade-off and that what happens in the 1970s is is that theory is shown to be invalid I think would be the politest way of putting it now There's lots of reasons, I think, as to why the Phillips curve actually was not an adequate explanation of what the relationship between inflation and unemployment was in in the first place. But what happened in the 1970s was that you had pressures that were leading to rising unemployment in Western economies already, sort of there in some cases, like by the late 60s, the early 1970s. 70s. So in Britain's case, I mean, by 1972, there were already a million people unemployed, which was significantly higher than it had previously been during the post-war period. And then into that came the oil price shock, the first oil price shock in 1973, in the autumn of 1973, which sent inflation rocketing up. Once you actually factored in the role that oil prices played in the inflation, I don't think it's very difficult to explain why you would end up with rising inflation and rising unemployment. And when you have them together, is it fair to say that then politics becomes in part an argument about which is the bigger threat to democracy? Is it mass unemployment or is it 
inflation, which was running at 15, 20%, above 20% in many European countries, never reached that high, I think, in America. Does politics become an argument which is basically, which should you be scared of? Lots of people out of work or ever higher rates of inflation? In one sense, yes, but I think Britain's an interesting case here because if you go back to the point I said about 1972, so when unemployment reached one million people, that was seen as something that was politically unacceptable. I mean, bear in mind that unemployment was going to get more like three and a half billion in Britain by the 1980s. So the the Heath government in 1972 implemented a quite radical U-turn because Heath and his chancellor thought we simply cannot have unemployment at this level, that that is something that is politically disastrous for the Conservative Party and perhaps more widely for British democratic politics. I'm not clear how much they thought about that problem. If we you know, jump on till 1976, after Britain's sterling crisis has led the then Labour government to go to the IMF for a loan, and the loan comes with certain conditions. The primary ones involve cuts in public expenditure, which is very unpopular in the Labour cabinet. And the, the Labour Prime Minister, James Callaghan, stood up at the Labour Party conference in 1976 and said, basically, we used to think there's a trade-off between inflation and unemployment. But I tell you, I think you use the phrase in all candour, that is not, not the case. That If you prioritise unemployment, he was saying, you'll only end up with more inflation. And so what happened in 1976 was is that the Labour government prioritised inflation over unemployment. Now, the Thatcher government came in and pretty much carried on with that policy, whilst at the same time doing things in the way it dealt with inflation, in particular by having very high interest rates that sent unemployment rocketing up, largely because of the consequences of high interest rates on sterling. But interestingly, Thatcher herself implemented her own U-turn in 1981, when she thought that unemployment just could not be politically managed at the level on which it had reached. So although she was unsuccessful in bringing it down, Thatcher actually had been of the opinion that three million people unemployed was not safe. In the middle of the decade, how dangerous was it? There was a lot of talk about democracy having failed, that there might be coups, there might be a coup in this country, there might be um, coups around Europe. We had Watergate in America, democracy failed in India, it did, it did get suspended. With hindsight, do you think it was quite close to the edge of collapse? No, actually, I don't think that it was. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is is that there was this whole narrative around ungovernability. That was a phrase that was often used in the 70s. And I think there was, I think they were called the Trilateral Commission, and basically made this argument that too many expectations had been placed on democracy. It was democracy that was producing inflation, because citizens and politicians were expecting it to do things that it couldn't do. I think you might argue that, at least indirectly into the 80s, that the arguments for central bank independence and for taking central banks out away from deciding monetary policy came out of that line of argument. But I'm not sure it was particularly convincing, not least because it turned out by the late 70s, the early 80s, that you could have governments that came in and lasted for long periods of time, not just the Thatcher government in Britain, but the coal government in Germany. Mitterrand's presidency obviously lasted through two terms, even though he went through various prime ministers, not all of his own party. So it's quite hard, I think, to look at the 80s as a period that actually is more politically stable than the 70s. 
despite the fact that economic problems in some sense are deeper in the 80s than the 70s, as certain they are in terms of levels of unemployment in a country like Britain, and think that actually 1970s Europe was on the precipice, or Western Europe, I should say, was on the precipice. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So it's pretty unclear when it begins, and you've been talking about the 70s and we keep leaking to yeah. the 80s, so I'm going to give you some choices about where you think the 1970s might end. So one, to pick up on what you just said, is Jimmy Carter's decision about the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Paul Volcker, which I think was 78. Yeah. Is that possibly the decisive moment in this transition that you've been describing from one way of thinking about political economy to another? Possibly, yes. So Paul Volcker basically became chairman of the Federal Reserve Board and embarked on a policy of using monetary policy to squeeze inflation out of the American economy. And that had very profound consequences for everybody else. I mean, you could, I think, describe it as a, in the same way which there was a Nixon shock, that there was a, a Volcker shock. And indeed, you know, the origins of the exchange rate mechanism, which ultimately led to dissatisfaction with which ultimately led to the creation of the euro was the exchange rate mechanism was really a response to Volcker shock and and indeed the debt crisis of developing countries that exploded in 1982 also came out of that so in one sense it's a bit hard to say that it's the end because it's the beginning of a, a new period of turbulence though you might say it's a different kind of turbulence than what had gone on in the 70s. I mean, the other thing that changes, and this is, I think, you just can't put a date on this, and in some sense it's the context in which the Volcker shock becomes possible, is the ways in which late Nixon administration and Ford administration stabilise the US-Saudi relationship in a way that makes it possible for the dollar to continue to be the world's international reserve currency despite the fact that there is no dollar-gold convertibility any longer, and that is through the relationship with Saudi Arabia. And then at the same time, it becomes clear that the benefit of higher oil prices is, is that more difficult oil production can take place, and that means production in the United States at Alaska and in North Sea. So the, the oil constraint also lessens really quite significantly. And... By the time we get to 1982, which I think might actually be some kind of contender for the end of the 70s, is oil prices going to be relatively low for the rest of the decade. And I do think that's an underestimated fact of why the 80s are different than the 70s. Obviously, in politics, the temptation is to look at elections as the breakpoints. And I think a lot of people, we call it the Thatcher Revolution, the Reagan Revolution, and they look at 79 Thatcher and 80, the election of Ronald Reagan, as the decisive breakpoints. Does what you say imply that actually the underlying economic story means that those are more symptoms than causes of the fundamental change that's coming? Yeah, I mean, I think if you go back to what we've already said, is is in the case of, of the United States, I think you can certainly argue that the Volcker moment is more important than the Reagan moment. And I think you can argue that 
the watershed in British economic policy is 1976 and the Stirling crisis, the IMF loan and Callaghan's speech and that what the Thatcher government does is a continuation of that. Now it's a different continuation of that because Thatcher's first government is in the Volcker world and it's a world in which American interest rates are high and the high interest rate route is then the route that the Thatcher government goes down as well and that is what does a lot, an awful lot of the economic damage to the British economy in the 1980s. So some of the outcomes look pretty different from middle of the 1970s Labour government to Thatcher but I still think there's an underlying structural context that comes out of the 70s rather than Thatcher's election or the Conservative Party's election in 1979 under her leadership representing a a, a really qualitatively different watershed. There's a great book, we'll tweet the link to it, which says that 1979 is the year that made the world that we now live in. One of the things it argues is that a whole series of people came to prominence in that year You mentioned one, Ayatollah Khomeini in the Iranian Revolution, Pope John Paul, Margaret Thatcher, someone we've discussed, someone we haven't discussed, Deng Xiaoping in China, changing the nature of Chinese political economy. One of the things that I always think it's worth remembering when you see that story is you go back a few years before that and you'd said these are the people who are going to invent the new world order. In 75, Margaret Thatcher, before she became leader, was a failed education secretary. John Paul was the Bishop of Krakow. Deng Xiaoping was... Exiled somewhere in the Chinese countryside, Ayatollah Khomeini was also exiled from Iran. Things can change incredibly quickly. Of those four, we talked about Thatcher, but the other three, John Paul, the Ayatollah, Deng Xiaoping, are these the makers of the period that's going to come after the 70s? I think Deng Xiaoping, if we take him first, what happens in China under his leadership is fundamental to China's transformation over the last few decades. I don't think there's any question about that. The consequences of what's going on in China don't seem really to get on the West's radar until pretty late, I would say, you know, like well into the the late 90s, maybe even the early 2000s, because in the early part of the 90s, it all becomes about Tiananmen Square and China as a human rights question rather than really engaging with what's happening to China economically. So he matters profoundly, I think, in terms of laying the foundations of what's to come with China, though, as I say, it takes some time for that to play itself out. I think Pope John Paul II is a is an interesting case um, because I think it'd be, it'd be quite hard to tell a story that, you know, allocated him or anything like a decisive causal role in the events that were going to lead to eventually the collapse of Soviet rule in Eastern Europe. Oh, it should be said some people do allocate yeah. him the decisive causal role that his trips to Poland in particular yeah. changed everything. What I was going to say was that I do think, though, that there's something symbolically pretty dramatic about that. I remember that trip to Poland and, and it came obviously in the context of the Solidarity Movement in Poland and the sense that this time it was going to be a lot more difficult for the Soviets to simply put down the rebellion that was taking place because after all that's what they'd done in Czechoslovakia in 1968, what they'd done in Hungary in 1956, it's what they'd done in East Germany in 1953 I think and this one they never really were able to to deal with. Now I think that there's other reasons to do with why that was the case I think that we can't underestimate the economic pressure that the Soviet Union came under in the 80s in 
significant part actually because of the collapse of oil prices in the middle of the 1980s, the pressure that the Afghanistan war put on Soviet rule internally and in the Soviet economy. But I do think that he's symbolically very important because it was a way of focusing the moral objection. He was a symbol of focusing the moral objection to what was going on in Eastern Europe. And prior to that, I think, in in the West during the Cold War, there was an acceptance or belief that manifested itself as acceptance that there was nothing that could be done about Eastern Europe. That simply was the way the world was, that that was the Soviet sphere of influence and that it was a terrible tragedy for the Poles and the Hungarians and the Czechoslovakians, etc. But Pope John Paul II was a symbol of the fact that, no, it didn't have to be accepted. And the Ayatollah Khomeini, is he the most important of all? Well... Because you implied earlier that maybe that's the decisive event at the end of the 70s. I think you can make an argument that it is. If we go back to the beginning of the 70s, one of the things that really changed and... I think actually the decision of it to do this was announced in the late 1960s, but it was implemented in 19, either in 1970 or 1971, was the withdrawal of Britain from the Gulf. So basically, in the post-war era up to then, the Western interests in the Gulf, Western oil interests, because that's ultimately what they were, were basically managed militarily by the British. And Britain was not able to carry on with that role because of the drain on the British economy of trying to maintain this essentially ongoing imperial role. So Britain pulled out. The Americans were deeply unhappy, but they were embroiled in Vietnam at the time. It was not possible for them at the beginning of the decade to take on any kind of military responsibility in the Gulf. So American policy at that point is, okay. we have to rely on on the Saudi king and we have to rely on the Shah of Iran. And that was a two-pronged approach to dealing with Western security in regard to oil in the Gulf. And then you know, one pillar of that completely falls apart at the end of the decade, and it's, and it's never gone back in place. And it's meant that the US has had to be much more dependent on Saudi Arabia, with all the consequences we know and complications that have come out of that. It means that there is one of the significant oil producers in the, in the Middle East essentially has hostile relations not only with the United States but with Israel and that makes the Middle East a very difficult place even allowing for the other difficulties that already exist and we can see the ways in which how to deal with Iran is divisive in American politics internally and we can see the ways in which it is now a conflict that also involves Russia and China playing their role in the Middle East particularly Russia, it's a very difficult one to see how we get out of the position that we're now in into something that's any different. It's an artificial game saying which decade really matters. Every decade matters, certainly in the 20th century, every decade matters. But is it your belief that we're basically still living with the legacy of the 1970s? Yes and no. I think that the 1970s is when the initial post-war international order broke down. I think a new one was reconstructed. It had got some continuities with the past, but the the Americans patched it up in ways that, as I said, I think gave the Saudis an importance that they had not had in the initial post-war order. I think I would argue that actually the one then that the Americans patched up is now, if not unravelling, is going too far, but is under very severe strain. So it may be that the the revamped 1970s order 
is coming to an end. Thank you very much to Helen. We will tweet links to some further reading about the 1970s. Our next guide is going to be our suggestions about summer reading. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Do you want me to do that again? Yeah. yeah. I'm so, yeah. so excited now. <laughs> well, you told me to be up, so... Yeah, be up. Be up Just good. don't hit the chair. <laughs> there is a nice symbolic one for 1970 itself, because that's the year... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>